Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Beach Ratty. Yesterday was a uh, heat blast here in Chicago. Got me thinking about spring and golf. So now's probably a good time to evaluate your closet. Look at those uh, golf clothes, those polos, and see which ones might be slightly worse for the wear. And uh, a great place to go replace those is BeDratty.com. And you got, they got a ton of polos. These guys make the best polos in golf. Uh, my personal favorite is the Liam Polo. It uh, comes in five different colors. It is made with that soft Peruvian cotton that BeDratty is famous for. It's got a hint of stretch. And one of the cool things you can do with this polo is you can add a monogram to it. So you can add your initials to it on bedratty.com. Check it out. It's the Liam Polo at bedratty.com. And if you use the code FRIEDEGG15, you'll get 15% off your purchase. So go do a little spring cleaning in your closet. We got a a little heat wave here in Chicago for the next week. I might even get out to the golf course. But check out the Liam Polo. Uh, from our friends over at BeDratty.com. Today's episode is with current assistant golf coach at Georgia State and former agent Nick Mackey. Uh, Nick is a guy that I met, you know, out on a golf course covering amateur golf. Nick was out scouting players for, at the time, he worked for Blue Giraffe. He's uh, Australian. He played a few years of professional golf trying to... Uh, chase it uh was a very very good amateur player and um you know he's got a lot of really good insight into the game from a playing standpoint a um young kid standpoint and from the business side of golf so we hit on a lot of different topics from you know what he looks for in players to the business side of golf with sponsorships exemptions and all sorts of stuff so uh, I really appreciate the time from Nick, and uh, without further ado, here's Nick Mackey. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. So yeah, uh, you're out of the agent world. You're now the assistant golf coach at Georgia State. How's the uh, transition been? It's been good, man. Um, I like to say when we were recruiting with Blue Giraffe and would talk to college kids, you know, I like to kind of say that, you know, when you had your parents um, looking after you when you're in high school, and you had your college coach looking after you in college, um, young young guys and girls coming out of college, that's what we were doing as an agent. So. It was. It's a similar kind of skill set. It's um, especially the recruiting side. It's very similar. You just you're recruiting high school kids for college instead of college kids for the pros. So you're looking at kind of um, you're looking at kind of similar skill sets and similar similar attributes to players that you think are going to be useful. And you know, and the, the travel is kind of similar in terms of going to tournaments. And you know, um, and there's a fundraising element to both as well um, in terms of sponsorships for tour players and in terms of um, you know fundraising for college. So yeah, it's a lot of a lot of similar kind of stuff, just just shifted at different levels. What uh, so you're evaluating play- players all the time, you know, and yeah. you have been for mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, what uh, 
what are your kind of favorite things to look for when you're looking at these younger kids and how they play golf? Um, well, we get a lot of, we get a lot of like cold emails from kids from all over the world. You know, they might be from Georgia or they might be from, we, we got one from a kid from Malaysia the other day. And, um, you know, a lot of them from recruiting, recruiting groups and stuff like that, that, that have access to us, which is fine. Um, and I look at all of them. I don't kind of dismiss them and delete them because you never know when there's a kind of diamond in the rough or anything. But I mean, without ever seeing a kid play, um and getting a lot of those emails the first thing i look for is just the ability to shoot low scores really like if if i look at a kid's resume and they're like i finished first in this event and fifth in this event and tenth in this event or whatever that's great but i don't know how many players are in it i don't know the distance you played it from you know there's a lot of factors you're not going to know but if i can see you know you got a 16 or 17 year old that's putting up 67s or 68s or 69s with great some regularity that's that always piques my interest to start with um so that's in terms of like uh of looking at kids that that i haven't seen um but it's it's similar when it's similar when i'll go watch a player you know i'll watch how they kind of handle themselves on the golf course i know um had it uh going at uh, northwest and i know i remember hearing him say something one time i think it was on a podcast that he likes watching players when they don't play well because you can look at a resume and tell if a kid's pretty good um and you can watch them and tell them what they tell what they're good at, um, but it's really interesting watching how they handle adversity, you know, because it's such an up and down game as we all know. That um, they're watching a kid struggle sometimes when you know they're a good player, they're not going to play good every day. Watching them struggle kind of gives a an interesting insight into um, not only into their personality as a as an individual, but their personality as a golfer too. Yeah, I imagine that that it, it's. You know, everybody's everybody looks really good when they're shooting sixty seven, but it's the guys Yeah, exactly. Seeing seeing what happens when the guy's not hitting it great and, and what they what they do, you know? Yeah. That's it's exactly right. Like you can see you go watch a kid and he goes plays goes and plays pretty good and you're kinda like, Well, he's played pretty good, you know, he's done all the things, you know right for for whatever type of player he is you know he may have putted well may have he may be you know long enough overpowered a course whatever it may be but um yeah it's interesting when they when they don't play well and when they're struggling can they put together a score you know can they go can they can they rely on their short game a little bit some days can they find a go-to shot when they're struggling to control it um you know and can they put up can they put up a 73 or 74 when they're having a really off day um because that's what I see, like, with our guys or with, you know, a lot of college players. When they play well, they can play well. Um, it's kind of what they shoot when they when they play poorly sometimes. It's whether they can, you know, if you've got a couple of guys struggling, can they give you a, can they give you a number that you can account? Or if they start struggling, are they just going to continue struggling and throw, throw a 78 or an 80 or an 82 at you that you can't do anything with, you know, so... I imagine it's kind of a look into how they would be, say, you know, they're, they're playing poorly. They, they aren't playing on the traveling squad or, or if in the professional space, when you're going through a rough stretch mm-hmm. shows you kind of how they handle themselves too. Cause that's so much of golf is dealing with that kind of stuff. Oh, and I think that that gets, that's absolutely true. I think it gets, um, that gets extrapolated even further when you're playing as a professional. Cause, um, you know, I would say to when I was an agent, I would say to kids, you know, that were coming out of college, like, you think you play a lot of golf now? Wait till you turn professional. Like, don't tell me, don't tell me you're tired because you've just played five events in a in a spring season, and you know you're only going to play 
two or three events over the summer because you don't want to get burnt out. I'm like, geez, I, I know guys and, and know you do too, guys that were playing, you know, the web or the corn ferry that have gone like 12, 16 weeks in a row at the end of the year. Like one of my one of my friends I traveled with when I played, um, Travis Petoni, um, I know Travis played every event on the on the web one year. Um, just because he was he was playing okay and he was kind of right around the numbers for exemption and he just couldn't take a week off and he just he played every week you know and so it's a lot of it's just so much getting used to that because there's you're not going to play good through all those stretches and there's going to be a lot of up and downs so it's 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 been able to handle those those down not just weeks but you know down months or six months or whatever it may be so yeah that I it's almost like the guys that make it, I always say, have like the shortest memories. And I, Bill Simmons always used to say about like guys like J.R. Smith, who mm-hmm. ir- irrational confidence guys. Yeah, it's absolutely. Like great quality to have. Like, yeah. It's, it's one of the reasons I find, I find Bryson really, um, really fascinating is because I, I've said this to, to younger guys too as an advice thing. I was like, you don't necessarily have to be doing exactly the optimal thing for your golf game, but you have to believe it is completely, you know, you have to, you have to have a hundred percent faith that the instructor you're working with, you know, what you're working on, the, the tool you're playing on, the equipment you're using, like all these things, everything you're doing is, is exactly what you need to be doing. Um, and that, that kind of builds into that irrational confidence that you're talking about, you know, and you have to kind of just have faith in that. Um, and just and trust it because it's so competitive that if you're doubting yourself in one or more of those areas, it's easy to get blown by by ten guys. You know. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of people wonder how how do you get into the the golf agent space? Like how did how did you find your way into being a golf agent? Um, I I fell into it a little bit. Um. I'll try and I'll try and get the story fairly short, but um, I played on tour for a while over here, and then played um, in Australia for a couple of years. Came back and got into the coaching side of things with um, Kennesaw State. I was with the women's program there for two years, and while I was doing that, I was doing my masters because um, it was a graduate position, so I had two years there, um, and did my masters in sports management um, through Georgia State while coaching in Kennesaw, and then. Um, towards the end of that, I was, I kind of wasn't sure what I was going to do. I wanted to stay in coaching because I liked it, but there's only, you know, so many good coaching positions or ones that I would have liked to take. Um, and one of my college teammates, um, when I played, I played Jacksonville State on the women's side. Um, she'd been working for an agency for a couple of years. So I'd met everyone she'd worked with and I kind of knew what she was doing and stuff like that. Um, towards the end of getting me getting my master's, I, I was at their practice facility. They had a, um, Blue Draft Sports is who I worked for, but they had their uh, they had a teaching academy here in Atlanta, um, and one of my buddies was an instructor out there. So I was out there one day just kind of hanging out and hitting balls, and um, the, one of the principals for Blue Giraffe, his name is Matt Judy, um, who ended up being my boss. Matt was Matt was out there, and I'd, I'd met him through through my old teammate um, a couple times, so we knew each other, and we were just kind of chatting. And he asked me what I was up to, and I kind of explained. I was like, "Look, I'm doing my masters," and and coaching a little bit but i'm not sure what the next step's going to be and and blah 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 and it just so happened that uh, my old teammate florencia she would she was about to go out on maternity leave and i had to do a, uh, an internship to finish up my master's and it just kind of mapped going to place and that says well why don't you come do your internship with us would be 
the idea that you know if it works out you can you can stick around so that's how I kind of um, I kind of started I did my did my internship with Blue Giraffe um, which lasted through the summer um, and then Florencia was still out on maternity leave and I think I'd done a good enough job that they were like yeah we'll, we'll keep you on so they brought me on full-time and yeah we kind of went from there and I was I was with them for close to five years um, transition back into the coaching world just this last um, August. What in terms of the the general sphere of agents? What what is is there a predominant background that most have, or is it all kind of random, uh, different walks of life that get in there? I, I imagine some are legal, some are you know. Mm-hmm. So it, there's a, probably a lot of different ways to get into it. Yeah, there is, and and that's that's what I always, like. It's one of the hard things, and Matt explained this to me really well. Really well. There's um. One of the really good and really bad things about the industry um, as a whole is that you you don't have to pass a test to be a, an agent or specifically a PGA Tour or a golf agent. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to have anything. You can, if you knew a kid, and we saw Tim Mickelson do this with um, with John Rahm, you know, like if you have a kid that you have a relationship with and they're turning pro and you think they're good enough, you can act as their agent. Like that's, you know, players have, Players have their wives listed as their agents sometimes later in their careers or whatever it may be, or they act as their own. Um, so that's there's no real regulations to it, which is good, but there's also no real regulations to it, which can be bad because you can get people jumping into the industry that don't really know what they're doing, um, and they kind of throw the market around a little bit because that you know there's moral and ethical um, lines you have to walk between that aren't necessarily drawn in writing sometimes so um so yeah so a lot of people my the two principals from my company was uh, matt judy and bobby kreuzler uh both had law backgrounds um so they started the company um coming out of a, another agency um and use their use their law backgrounds to be able to you know you have to write contracts and stuff sometimes so that really helps but some agents are like me. They come from the playing playing side of things. Um, some come out of um, the equipment side. You know, some some have degrees, law degrees. Some have master's degrees in or MBAs, um, and some have nothing. You know, but most most have some sort of entryway into the golf world through um, through a kind of high level high level golf, whether it's coaching or playing or in, you know whatever it may be. So. A lot of a lot of different ways you can kind of get into it. What uh, what do you think in terms of, when you played professionally? There was like a, a lot of mini tours that you could have success. Yeah, I mean the Hooters tour, uh, e golf tour, yeah. and now the mini tours have pretty much died. Um, you know, outside yeah. of a a few that aren't really big mini tours, and, and there's really one pathway up uh, through. Mm-hmm. Canada, Latin America to the Corn Ferry. What what do you what are your thoughts and the strengths and or I guess the pros and cons of this system versus the old system? Well, yeah, when I played it was kind of the the height of the the Hooters tour era where that's where everyone played and that was you know, the e-golf tour was pretty big as well at that time. So so guys kind of either played one or the other. We'd have you know, guys in Texas or guys in California, based in California or wherever coming over to play. And we had a bunch of Australian guys come over and play the Hooters tour every year. Um, because that was the only place to play really where you could, you could earn good money back then. The money on those mini tours were pretty decent. You know, we had, 
every year there was a you know one or two guys who led the money list would make over a hundred grand and um, you know that's obviously gross and that's before expenses and stuff but it's 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 pretty good um, and so Latin America and Canada existed then but there wasn't the money on them and it certainly wasn't the money to um, to entice anyone to go play them because there was with all the mini tours at the time there was no way to kind of move up so I think one of the really big advantages and the the good things about those two tours having affiliation with the pga tour now is there is now a stepping stone from that level where before the only stepping stone was q school and that q school could have got you a pga tour card at the end of the year which is really cool and there were some great stories came out of that um but at the same time if you missed out on that that was it you know you're going back to play mini tours for a year and you know roll the dice at the end of the next year um now it gives guys a chance to play somewhere, um, gives them a chance to learn how to travel and how to deal with kind of um, the rigors of week to week being a professional golfer. Um, they don't they don't pay enough, obviously, but that's the same with the Corn Ferry, and we everyone's kind of aware of that. But but there's now kind of a stepping stone and a um, and a pathway that they can they can get on that has, for lack of a better term, a light at the end of the tunnel. Where before we were playing mini tours, you know, you could make some money on it, but you know, if you didn't do well at Q School at the end of the year, you were straight back to where you were before. That, that's the thing with golf too is that you could be the best player in the you know in the world fifty one weeks of the year, and if you don't play well in that that one week in Q School, it's it's you know kind of make or break time for those guys. Yeah, yeah, and there was there, I mean, there's still a lot of pressure on Q School you know, for most of the guys, because not everyone's going to get through. I mean, there's only a handful of cards in Canada and Latin America getting through, but but now you can get exempt through to second stage. You know, if you play really well on one of those tours, you can get exempt through to finals if you play really well on one of those tours. Um, and that, yeah, that kind of wasn't there before. And you just, you had to go, if you had to go to first stage, you had to go to first stage and you had to go, you had to go ball out for, for that week. And then you had to go do even better the week after, because I think, I think, still and back then and still that second stage is so important because you know it's the difference between at least having some status the next season and not having some status i mean it's even as small as as small as it sounds it's having somewhere to practice for free and play for free right yeah that was huge like i i was living with um one of my my best friends david skins shout out skinsy um we were living together in Atlanta, and one of the things I didn't have during the later periods of playing the Hooters tour is I didn't have really somewhere to practice. Like I didn't, I didn't go fork out money for a membership anywhere. But Skinzy got status at the end of '08 um, by getting to finals, and he could go out to Sugarloaf and TBC course out there in Atlanta and and go practice out there. So all of a sudden, like he had a really good practice facility to be able to go to every day, and I I went out there occasionally with him, but it wasn't very often. Um, and just having been able to do that was, you know, that was a, a really big thing, I think, for, for his development, for any kid that gets that kind of status, you know? I think that's something that people overlook is like, <laughs> if you're in a minor league situation and almost any other sport, you're going to have a great place to practice because it's going to yeah. be affiliated with a major league team and, you know, <laughs> they're going to have trainers, everything. But with, with golf, it's... you. If you don't have status you don't have a place to play you gotta you yeah. have to pay for it you know exactly and and that's that's what i always struggle with one of the poor decisions i made um 
when I was playing was, you know, instead of forking out what, five grand for a junior membership somewhere, somewhere decent, um, I, I said, uh, I'd always look at that and be like, that's five tournaments I could play, you know? And I was always more concerned with what the return on those five tournaments were rather than looking at it as an investment and saying, yeah, but now I have a place to practice and, you know, I only have to play well in a couple of tournaments and I'm going to make that back. Um, but we would say that to, uh, when I was working as an agent, we would say that to college kids coming out a lot because we'd talk to kids occasionally that were, or talk to their parents, whoever it may be, that they were, you know, thinking about coming out early and turning pro as a junior or a sophomore. And nine times out of 10, they, you know, maybe more than that, they probably weren't quite ready. And we would always say to them, like, why would you, why would you risk coming out and, you know, trying to get some status in Latin America or Canada when you can play and practice and get better on someone else's dime and play a really good schedule about with the best teams in the country, have a phenomenal practice facility. You know, this is for kids that are playing at some of the, some of the largest schools and some schools with some cash. Um, but, you know, stay in school and get better on someone else's dime. Like another year or two is not going to hurt if you're not quite ready. Um, and you just, you're thinking about it cause you kind of, you're over college golf, whatever the situation may be. Like you have the, a lot of these kids had the best ability to get better and they were kind of didn't realize it or, you know, it wasn't kind of right in front of them. It's, a, it's something you bring up. It, it made me think of something. It's like, we've seen like the proliferation of the youth explosion and every mm-hmm. other sport with drafts, like, you know, Mm-hmm. NBA, if you're if you're 21 years old, you're an old prospect in the NBA draft. Yeah. Do you think that because of the way the tour system is structured, where you can't go straight to the tour very easily, that keeps kids in school longer? I think it probably does. Um, it's kind of like the argument for paying NCAA athletes, like in all likelihood, there's only a handful of athletes like your Zion Williams or your Johnny Manziel's or whoever it may be that are really going to profit from that. You know, there's going to be a little bit of maybe profiting from likeness and appearance for some other players every now and then, but it's, it's really, it's really for those one or two big players. And it's same with, um, it's very similar with golf. You know, there's only, it's really only advantage coming out early for kids that know they're going to be able to get seven starts on the corn ferry and seven starts on tour. And that's really the, the top handful of guys like you, you know, wolves and Morikawa's and, um, you know, Norman Jong's or whoever it may be, you know, um, you get with a big agency, you know, you're going to get enough starts that you can at least kind of put a dent in trying to get a card somewhere. Um, How do those sponsor exemptions, is it, is it, how much of it is agent, agency based and then playing, playing merit based? And then how much of that is other than too? There's, there's a real mix. It depends on what level. I mean, there's been, there's been some issues in the last year or two. I know talking to guys that are still in it, that with the, um, the corn ferry and, and, and agents or agents or sponsors buying spots for guys. Um, and I know they've tried to put a rest- little bit of a restriction on that. Um, but you know, on that tour, you know, in previous years, if you went to them and said, look, we've got a sponsor who will sponsor, you know, a hole or whatever it may be, you know, they've got a player they want in the field. So that's, that's the sponsor exemption. You know, they're, they're paying They're basically paying to have a player put in there. Um, that doesn't really, happen on tour so i think it's a lot more merit-based but it's a real mix of um who's running the tournament because you know certain agencies 
run tournaments as well. So there's a real conflict of interest there sometimes. Um, but I actually kind of sat down one time and, and kind of went through it and looked at all the looked at all the tournaments and looked who ran them and, and tried to see were these agencies kind of giving away all the exemptions just to their guys. And there really weren't. There's, there was kind of, I think there's a little bit of a quid, quid pro quo pro quo in the uh in the industry where um you know it might be like hey we've we've signed this kid um and we run this tournament so we're going to put him in this one and if but if we can get him in your event you know then we'll have a spot for one of your young players you know so there's i i can't say 100 percent sure that that happens but it just seems like that happens based on where the exemptions kind of go yeah, so like IMG has like an event side of the business as well as their sure, agency, yeah. and the event side will run tournaments, right? Yes, exactly. So then, yeah, and they, and they run a lot of European stuff as well too. So, what what do you think about the pathway going to Europe where you can get that direct card? Why don't more Americans do that? Probably because it's a little bit of the unknown and that you're based here and it's just a little, if you're based here, it's a little more expensive. But I honestly don't know because I think it's a great option. But the hard part is the Challenge Tour is just so expensive and hard to play because it's there's a lot of travel. So you almost have to be, if you're, if you're on that level, you have to be based over there. Um, and if, if that's the case, then it's even more expensive to do it and it may just be more worthwhile um, monetarily to kids to... You know, if you're from California or from Georgia or wherever, just to to be based at home and then go play Canada or Latin America from there, um, and that's that probably ends up being cheaper than you know renting an apartment in London or wherever you might be. But I, I think it's a really good option. I'm surprised more more kids don't do it, but I, I think from what I've seen, more and more Americans are starting to look into it. Um, and I think you know guys like Brooks really opened the door for that um, to say you can go do it, and it's a good it's a good breeding ground for your game and you know, it, it teaches you more than any probably playing challenge tour in Europe probably teaches you more than anything how to be a professional because you're just traveling so many varied places, you know. It's crazy. Like Kurt Kitayama didn't even have web status mm-hmm. and then he goes over there yes. and wins three times. It's it's just yeah. nuts. And he's got European status. Yeah. Yeah. And he's playing WGC and, and the guy guy was just bumping around web and in Latin America. Yeah, and you never you never know what tour and is gonna suit your your kind of game as well. Um, you can kind of guess, like we know, you know, Canada generally plays shorter, tighter courses, tree-lined. You know, Latin America can be at elevation and be a little bit different. Um, you know, the Challenge Tour, they can go to some dodgy places where the greens might not be very good for for a few stretches. So you kind of got to be like, you know, figure out like some some stuff may suit your game a little bit more. You might adapt to whatever those conditions are a little bit better. Um but figuring that out can be a little bit of a, um, uh, yeah, you just, process. you just don't know. Yeah. It's a process. You don't really know. It's a hit and miss really until, unless you know someone with some experience that's been out there, um, which is one of the things that we tried to do as an agent was be able to ad- advise our young guys, what, what tours would be good places to play and should they put their money into playing mini tours or, or should they put their money into, trying to get through Canada or Latin America Q school, you know, it's all, it's very individual based. So I, I think everybody, I, I get asked this a ton when I play golf mm-hmm. with people is, is the economics of, of turning professional. Say, mm-hmm. obviously if you're, if you're one of the big names, you're going to get a big club deal, which is going to subsidize a lot of things. Right. And yeah. other deals. Yeah, sure. But if you say you're a guy that, that comes in, that's not the, you know, 
Matt Wolf, Morikawa level player. Mm-hmm. You're a you're a very good college player, and you're you're going to make a run at it. What what type of what's the the bare bones? What do you need to really make a legitimate run at trying to play professional golf? Per year or? Uh, we'll just say if if you were gonna if I if I. If I was just graduating college, mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not walking into huge endorsement deals. What what kind of money do I need to legitimately play and I, have I a good would, chance? The number I'd probably put on it is about fifty a year. Um, that may not necessarily even be considering covering, you know, rent at home or anything like that. But but probably fifty thousand a year can get you a couple of Q schools. It can get you travel if you get on it on a tour it can get you travel for you know i would say pretty much the whole year it might be able to get you a membership somewhere you know if you can get a junior membership um you know it'll it'll pay for the majority of your year i'd say maybe other than some living expenses and stuff like that so you know we tell like you very rarely see uh we had a really good player um we signed my last year when i was a blue giraffe and we had to try and find him some money because that's a that's a lot of money for for most people to come up with per year um, for to, it, whether it's parents giving it or whether it's sponsorship, um, which is hard to find, or whether it's just you know sponsors from your golf club. Like it's a lot of money to put together to be able to say, here's a lump sum, go be a professional golfer. You know you don't have to you don't have to go caddy in the mornings at a at a swanky club to make a couple of hundred bucks a day and then go hit balls in the afternoon like that. You're doing that. You can certainly. There's certainly plenty of guys that have made their way up to it, and that's absolutely um, a, a legitimate way to do it, and probably an admirable way to do it as well. But it's it's hard when you're battling so many good players in such a deep field of competition coming out every year to not be able to say, "Hey, I'm going to be a professional golfer 100% of my day." You know, I mean, not I'm going to do it for 50% and then try and some money on the side. You know. Yeah, and, and hitting golf balls after a day of carrying two bags is a lot. Yeah, exactly. It's not, you're not. It's not like the guy that just went and worked out at uh, at Joey D's, or you know, and uh, yes. rolled into you know, had a great breakfast, and and then just went Grabbed to the coffee club. and then rolled into Bear, yeah Bears Club and went hit some wedges and then played eighteen. You know, you're getting done at two in the afternoon and it's summer and you're sweating and you don't really feel like hitting five hundred balls. You know, so it's about putting yourself in the the best possible place you can um, is what I would always say to, to younger guys when they're coming out and figuring out what that is for you. And look, if that's living at your parents' house for a couple of years, so be it. Like who gives a shit, honestly, like you're not there that often anyway, if you're playing professional golf. So um, yeah, it's about finding the right setup that can allow you to be as good as you can possibly be. And a lot of the time that means having some money behind you. So finding that's a, a real big part of, um, the first couple of years of, I would say, of, of a professional's life. If, like you said, if you're not a kid that's coming out and saying Callaway's giving you, you know, a couple of hundred grand a year, you know, which is not not many guys. What were some of the most creative ways you saw guys do, achieve, like get get the money they need? Um, I saw it a few times where guys would get, um, you know, have people buy shares in them at their golf club, um, which is always a good way to do it. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of different ways. We would always say to young guys, young girls, when they were coming out, like, look, you need to just tap all your contacts. And if you're, 
if you're a personable person at your home golf course and you've grown up there, like you have to take some sort of advantage of that and you have to be able to try and put, if you want to put some money behind yourself, that's a really good way to do it, you know, or it's, you know, it's finding businesses that, um, you know, alum, maybe alumni businesses from the school you played at or finding donors that your college coach may know or whatever it may be. But yeah, there was, there was guys that would shell, sell shares in themselves, um, you know, and have to pay those back. I've, I've seen some deals go bad. I was in a texting conversation with a couple of buddies the other day that have um, been around golf for a fair bit. And, and we were talking about, you know, deals we'd heard about that had gone bad where, you know, sponsors were paying them a hundred grand or 75 grand for the year and they could do whatever they want with it. But, you know, they got locked into having to pay that back at an interest rate. And, and then, you know, then they weren't playing well. And then the, the contractor determined they needed to pay money back. And they're like, it's just, there's good ways and bad ways to do it. And sometimes, um, sometimes even just getting a lot of money isn't the right way unless it's, unless it's kind of structured right for the every individual. There's good money and bad money. You know? There is for sure. Depends on, depends on where it's coming from. Depends on who's giving it to you. Depends on if you have to give it back and at what percentage and kind of all that stuff. So it's crazy. One of the crazy ones I heard of was the Kenny Perry one where he, where a, uh, like a, a notable alumni from Lipscomb gave him yeah. money, and then he it, it, the deal was he had to set up a scholarship if mm-hmm. he if he made it to donate earnings yeah. back. And like for his entire career, he donated a a, a decent sized chunk of his earnings back into Lipscomb, the scholarship fund for Lipscomb. Yeah, I had a little bit to do with some. We recruited one of the players out of Lipscomb um, uh, a couple of years ago, Dawson Armstrong. Great kid, um, really, really good Dawson. player. But, Really good player. Got to know his family really well, and they're just wonderful people. Um, and we we didn't end up signing him, but I know his dad was involved in the fundraising stuff at Lipscomb, and they do they do a phenomenal job. So um, I'd vaguely heard that story before, but yeah, it's like yeah, that money was probably going somewhere that was really worthwhile and great for their program. But Kenny, Kenny Berry might have been on tour for twenty years, and he's like, "Why is this check still going out every year?" You know? Yeah. So, I think he was going to give it up. It was his last try. The guy, like, like, I mean, he wouldn't have been a, a tour player. He wouldn't, been, he wouldn't have been Kenny Berry. It's it's amazing. Like, those – and I think this is what, like, you guys and, and um, you know, the Monday Q Twitters and stuff like that, you guys do a great job of highlighting that stuff because it's – it is. It's cutthroat and it's it's amazing. And there's, there's guys I've seen that had incredible amounts of talent that gave it up probably before they should have or before they could have. But for whatever reason, whether it was – whether it was starting a family or it just became financially not viable or, or they just got sick of it and didn't like the grind of being on the road all the time, whatever it is, like you have to, there's a little bit of a personality you have to have to, to kind of be a professional golfer sometimes, especially if you've got to go through a significant amount of years of, of going through the wilderness and, and, you know, fighting your way up to the top of the mountain. Yeah. That's the misconception is that, that, that way up is one of the least glamorous positions, you know, you can have, yeah. it's, it, it, you know, it, you see what the guys go through and it's like, I, you know, that doesn't seem like something I would want to do sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of, it's a lot of work to get there for a lot of guys sometimes. And so like the rewards of the money that's on the PGA tour, which is incredible is, is, is the, you know, the goal at the end of it or, or, you know, even just, being as good a player as you can be but yeah it's a slog for most guys i would say to get there and you know at some at some point even if you've got the ability sometimes guys are just like i'm done you know i'm just i'm tired of 
beating their head against the wall, which certainly was the case when when I uh, when I finished. Uh, with with the sponsorship deals, mm-hmm. what's the order and prior like the value of the different spots people will see on people's apparel? So hat, you know, yeah. shirt. Yeah, um, headwear is number one. So front of the hat. Um, so a lot of deals kind of go based on what that front of the hat's going to look like. Um, we saw it a lot when Nike got out of the manufacturing business because um, they were willing to pay players a little bit more because they know they know guys were going to be playing different equipment, but they you know they were going to outfit them in the apparel still, um, but they had to pay a little bit more because that front of the hat was going to be taken and that wasn't going to be able to be taken by um, by another spot. Nike was also very um, insistent. They they relaxed on it a couple of times. I know they did it with Jason Day, but um, they were very um, insistent that there were no other logos on the on the clothing. That's why you can't see most of their players just in straight Nike gear, um, and you have to find somewhere else for the logo. Um, so yeah, front of the hat's usually the, the most uh, valuable spot. Then um, the chest opposite whatever your shirt logo is is usually second. Um, then it kind of can vary a little bit, but usually it's it's one of the sleeves, um, collar, belly of the bag. Uh, you know, back of the hat or back of the shirt were usually kind of the last ones um, mm-hmm. you, you try and sell. So, you know, when you see – I was talking to a couple of my players about this the other day because they were asking about it, but when you see, you know, Ricky's a really good example because Ricky's got premium sponsors. He's, a, he's a probably one of the most recognized players out there. So there's definitely a market value to like each spot on his apparel, you know. So you can he could they could sell those for X amount based on kind of what the market value is. Yeah. Um, what? Uh, how does that change from tour to tour? It 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 changes from tour to tour. It also changes from levels um, on tours. So it's particularly particularly on the PGA tour. You know, for a, a guy, there's a really big difference between those top. 20 30 whatever it may be really recognizable players like your djs tiger jason day ricky those kind of guys um and and then your other guys that are maybe not that level but are very recognizable or like a um like an ian pulter or um I'm trying to think who would else be in that category um, sergio would probably sergio, be maybe like zach johnson now um but he's not kind of in the top 10 in the world anymore but those kind of guys that are still very recognizable there's a really big difference between those guys and like your kelly craft yeah kelly craft or like the guys we had like mark hubbard who like hubs the hubs was on tour for like three years straight when he got out there and i don't know if anyone knew who it was you know like, he's he like one of my favorite guys i've met he's I like the hubs. best guy He's, he's he's awesome and he's a great personality but he wasn't he went in tournaments out there and he wasn't up there regularly so your everyday golf fan doesn't know who he is even though he's getting his tour card back every year and like he went back down to the to the corn fair and immediately won out there and got straight back on tour you know so the guy can seriously play but he hasn't won any tournaments and he hasn't won any big name tournaments so no one really knows who he is so the ability to sell sponsorship dollars on him is so much different than a Zach Johnson, even though they might be about the same spot on the money list, you know? Something I've thought about a lot is that part of me thinks that the hat actually diminishes the marketing value of the person because it makes them less recognizable. 
Are you talking like like talking about like how recognizable like Ollie is? Or yeah, but like the Robert NBA, Ross so maybe? the NBA most recognizable athletes, they wear the least like they're the most recognizable because you see their entire face. It's the only sport where mm-hmm. you see their entire face. Like tennis would be a similar one. Like you're, it's yeah. very Rafa Nadal is very recognizable, you know, mm-hmm. versus golfers like can because they wear the hat. It limits their recognizability with, especially the common fan, not the mm-hmm. diehard. But that, uh, to me, that's where the marketing is. Yeah. Or, but what the marketing companies see is instead of recognizing their face as much as a player, you re- you associate that brand to the person. True. And that's that's what they're selling it for. But because everyone does wear a hat, there is the inverse reaction of. You know, what's Robert Rock and Ollie Schneidergen's known for? You know, they're known for not wearing hats and having great hair. Like yeah. so maybe because of, maybe because of that, their value to sponsors, you know, on their shirt or on their bag or whatever it may be is increased. So there's there's certainly there's certainly that aspect of it, but it'd be interesting um to go to have a situation where like I I love watching like old masters videos. Like it's one of I put all the old final rounds on just in the background when I'm working and stuff sometimes and to see like Greg Norman not wearing a hat in 1986, you know, whatever it may be and going, God, how much money if he was doing that today would have been leaving on the table, you know, that kind of thing. But you know, half the guys were probably doing that. So it wasn't as, it didn't stand out as much as when Robert Rock does it or Owen Schneider dance does it. But yeah, it seems like, but that's what, that's what companies are doing. Like they, like, like how many of us knew what KPMG was before Phil put it on his hat, you know? Yeah. And so then, it be, and then he becomes recognizable more because of, because of that sponsorship and vice versa. That company becomes recognizable because of their association with him. That's true. It's, it's a give and take, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so say you're middle of the road PGA tour player, what kind of, value is is a shirt or a shirt get, getting them um i'll tell i'll tell this story beforehand and i'll preface it with this but my boss matt when i was with blue giraffe used to tell me about like the glory days of sponsorship money and stuff like that he was telling me like before the financial crash they had they had a guy like um they had brett quigley for a long time and you know quigs is one of those real journeyman guys like was out there every single year but i mean he was almost notorious because he didn't win out there after being out there for so long um you know and one recently which was really cool but um they were telling me what they could get for quigs sponsorship stuff even like his shoes or his equipment and whatever it may be back in the day and like i don't, I don't want to put a number on it necessarily because I'm, I'm probably wrong but saying at a guess it was like they could get like 750 grand for all his sponsorship stuff together for That's a year. insane. Yeah. And like, and now a guy, if you want to put a guy, you know, we'll use Hubs as an example because he's kind of the same sort of level. A guy that's been out there a bunch but hasn't won. I mean, you can't get anywhere near that. That's like, that's like top 30 player in the world money almost. And they were saying like back in the day, like when the Tiger boom was kind of really, really rolling, like it was like every player. So it was really lucrative to be not only to be an agent, but have have a number of players when now it's lucrative to have a really big players, like a handful of really big players that that pays out way more. I mean, they used to get paid just to put a putter in the bag, right. For a week. Exactly. 
Yeah, we used to get we used to get tee up money. I remember when um when I first turned pro, um the the guys that I was with Cleveland and Trixon for basically my whole career, and they they still send me golf balls occasionally and stuff like that. Um, and and my rep through them um, told me when I went to Monday for one of the um, um, one of the web events back then. I think it was even that might have been nationwide back then or buy.com, I can't remember. Um, but I was in a playoff to get in. And he'd messaged, and I said, I, I think I called him or said, look, I got in a playoff, you know, he's like, awesome, go get in. He said, if you get in, he said, go buy a tailor-made driver from the golf store, put it in your bag, because if they see you have it in your bag and you have one of our drivers in their bag, they will attempt to pay you for using that. And he said, and then you can just take it out later on, you know, like the tee up money, even on the, on the secondary tours and stuff like back then was, you know, like a grand a week, you know, the pays for your hotel or whatever yeah. it is you know that that stuff doesn't exist anymore yeah it wasn't i guess it wasn't economically sound and wasn't viable over the long period we're seeing more and more players go no no sponsorship deal on equipment is that because of the the diminishing amounts of money that the equipment companies are paying it's probably a combination of that um it's also a combination of and unless you're Ricky Fowler, one of those guys, you're probably always going to make more money off the course than you are on the course. Um, you know, I know we've seen like Brooks and Paul Casey and those guys go to the, the no equipment deals and, and they've done great. And they're, they're an exception because they're obviously very marketable as well. But even for a Paul Casey type of guy, like if he goes and has a really good year on, on tour and makes four or five mil, he's probably not pulling four or five mil off the course, you know? So it's advantageous for, for almost all the players to play what you play really well with. And yeah. so, I mean, we, I, you know, how many times have you seen, like, a guy switch equipment and there was some, you know, some, I saw some stuff on Twitter this afternoon about a certain... Um, Billy certain Horschel. Tro- certain trooper <laughs> leaving, the, <laughs> leaving the ranks. Like, and it, it may be the equipment, it may just be he's not playing well. Whatever it is, um, we would always kind of advise players to be really careful about kind of chasing money with equipment because they're like, look, these guys are paying you this amount. These guys want to pay you a bit more, but is it going to be worth it to take that little bit extra to play with equipment that you you may not be comfortable with? You may find stuff that works really well for you with whatever company it is, but yeah, especially for, for someone like him, because I know I know the ping engineers and stuff, they, those guys all went over to PXG and that was that was probably what made his switch a little easier. But Ping Ping or a company like that are a really specific equipment company. And if you've played them for a long time, <laughs> it's a certain feel that you really like. So jumping to a different equipment company, you know, can sometimes be really, really different. It can take some time to get used to. And, you know, if you're not playing well um, with us, even with a ball and stuff like that, um, you know, it, it can cost you on the golf course and that's going to cost you in the long run with sponsorships because you're just not going to be as visible as you were before. So we would always advise guys like don't necessarily chase the money. If you, if, so another company's offering you more money and you find stuff that you really like with them, that's great. But don't chase it for the sake of chasing it because it's more money because you're going to make more money playing well. And that needs to be the priority. I mean, for some of these guys, it's like it's the difference between a T50 and a T10th. If you turn one mm-hmm. T50 into one T10th, you pretty much make up the money, right? Yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's it's very rarely there's there's a real market value to to every level and every tour player. So it's never going to be a massive disparity. Like you're not going to 
you're not going to have a guy in the web who's been out there for a couple of years and is a decent player who's getting 25 grand a year from his equipment company. You're not going to have another equipment company all of a sudden, all of a sudden come along and tell him they're going to pay him a quarter of a mil. Like, cause that's just not market value. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So it's never that big a difference that it, sh- it shouldn't be that big a difference that it's, um, <clears throat> it's going to make a difference. But I think it was a real difference with PFG because they came in and, you know, had an open checkbook with a lot of players and, their their mo was you know we're going to spend money to sign the players we want to sign kind of thing so that was a little bit of a difference and there could have been some some disparity between you know what what maybe a Horschel type player was getting and what PXG could offer him but you know for the most part there's going to be a real market value that goes along with the player and the level they're at yeah I saw Justin Rose just took the Hanma out of his bag he's been he's using right? a, a tailor made this week yeah he went back to the tailor made didn't he yeah so that's interesting I mean. Did he, did he chase, I don't know, it's a question, that's a question probably only he and maybe his agent and a couple other people can answer, but did he, did he go to them because he thought it was a better, better equipment fit or was what's happening with Taylor, more likely what was happening with Taylor made, they weren't putting him front and center because they had a bunch of young guys coming through. Um, so he probably was going to leave anyway. Um, and, and Honima was the one that had the, you know, the best, maybe monetary deal for him or best set up for him or gave him whatever. So yeah, it's really interesting. We, I'd heard that coming down the pipeline when I was, when I was working about Taylor made because they were, they were talking about dropping so many players because they were in the hole so much because they were, they were giving away so much equipment basically. Um, so I think they've kind of changed their structure a little bit. I mean, it, and to a certain extent for these equipment companies that the impact that, that a DJ Rory, tiger have comparatively to a you know let's not bag on hubs all all but compared to you know mark hubbard you know they actually have some influence over consumers you know yeah 100 percent. yeah like um like even like nick taylor went in the other week like no one's gonna run out and buy a new driver because nick taylor was using it you know <laughs> like and he's a pga tour winner he's a hell of a player like don't get me wrong but but he's not he's not selling drivers. Like I think you're underrating the Canadian factor. <laughs> you think there was a spike in uh, in in driver sales in Toronto that week or something? Yeah, it's uh you know you can't under can't over uh, underestimate Canada's uh you know national pride. Yeah, the, the GDP the GDP jumped <laughs> when Nick Taylor won that week. Um, that very well may have been the case, but. Yeah, like a guy like yeah, like Jason Day's Jason Day's always gonna sell more drivers than him, you know, even if he wins two events a year and Jason Day doesn't win one this year. Right. So then those l- lower level guys, they become kind of more they're important because of the the big number statistics like you see on the on magazine ads where eighty yeah. percent of the tour uh, you know, game to tailor made not eighty percent, but fifty yeah. percent of the tour game to tailor made driver this week at this tournament for sure i mean and like like titleist in particular hangs so much on that ball count you know they they i think not only pride themselves on it because they've been the 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 most played ball for 100 years or whatever it is but um that's their that's their point of pride with their their company especially when related to the pga tour and stuff that's it's the most played ball so so it's the same with all the other equipment companies. Yeah, those other guys become really important at the end of the day for the the driver counts and the iron counts and stuff like that. And and it's 
it's a big thing for those companies to be able to say the most played iron on the PGA Tour and be able to actually put that in print and say, look, that this is legitimate because this is, you know, the Daryl survey says so, or whoever, you know, whatever survey says so. So, or the, you know, the most played driver in professional golf or whatever it is that they, they have to keep track of that stuff. And it's important because they, it works in their advertising, you know, and that, that's a, you know, for the average consumer, seeing that in print is, is, can be striking, you know? Yeah. No, that, it, it makes sense. And that's what ups the value of the, of the guys mm-hmm. from, from say 50 to 125 on the tour to 200 sure. is that, Hey, and that's why there, there used to be those, uh, the bonuses to play it in a mm-hmm. given week, right? Is to yeah. get them, get them over the edge if they're for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I just don't think those bonuses ended up being economically sound. Um, I just don't think they were, you know, I, I know, I know a couple of the equipment companies issues ended up being that they were giving away too much product almost. And that there was just so much product at the end of the year that was unaccounted for that it was like, it was a bottom line number that was jumping out at, you know, the accountants or whoever was looking at it. So that's tweaked it a little bit, but yeah, it's, it's really important for, for all those companies. So yeah, that's where, and, and I think some, some equipment companies, some of the smaller ones, they know they're not ever going to lead those. So their focus becomes, we're going to get the best players for us or the best fit for our players that fit for our brand or whatever it may be. Um, but certainly for the ones that have the money to spend, um, you know, leading driver counts and ball counts and stuff like that's the, the big thing for them. It'd almost be interesting to look at all the players that don't have deals. Like I know Scotty Scheffler didn't sign an equipment deal, which is so rare yeah. for a young player, but look at all the, what the, the equipment that all the guys that don't have deals play. And that probably yeah. is going to, lead you to what who's the best in different categories i, I know brooks uses mizuno irons and well know. that's what that's what casey was using um when i was working as an agent we wrapped johnny vegas and johnny when johnny went when nike left nike. he went to a no club deal he played mizuno irons um you know and so like it, that's not a surprise to guys like us who have been around golf a lot and and have you know know that that's a really high quality product so yeah, that's super interesting of the guys that that don't have deals what they actually play. Yeah. So yeah, going around because there's it's more and more every year. Um, and the tough and thing for like, those companies, they can't market it because they don't have the deal with them. Yeah, right? exactly. No, they can't. Well, you can't use name and likeness if they're not if they're not under contract with them. Um, so yeah, so that makes it really hard. Um, so with the with these deals, say say you're a Hubbard is just as an example. How much does the money go down when they when they lose their card? Um, pretty significantly because when it goes down, they, they then fall into like the corn fairy, um, basic corn fairy category. There may, be, there may be some wiggle room if they played it with a company for a long time and they maybe just had an off year and your agent can kind of negotiate to say, hey, look, they've had one down year, but you know, this is this is the type of player they are. So instead of getting the corn, you know, corn fairy, um, the basic corn fairy um, payment for equipment for the year, whatever it is, you know, let's let's put them either at the PGA low PGA to the level or, or somewhere in between or something like that. Um, but a lot of times it's just cut and paste on on the status, you know. So what um with the with the PGA tour as an agent, how do like, how does the whole finding process work? And like, 
say you're just a regular do do does every player get fined in a given year or is it just every once in a while what kind of fines happen i wasn't privy to a lot of that stuff because they do keep it pretty close to the vest and then it goes through the player most of the time um i wouldn't say like i'd be speculating i'd say but i i don't think every player gets fined but it's certainly there's certainly probably a lot of more little fines. You can look it up at the end of the year, and I've looked at the list and stuff before, but um, there's probably a lot more little fines than you realise and maybe not as many really big fines because the really big ones are the ones you see, like they're Sergio putting a hole in the bunker or Bryson putting a hole in the putting green or whatever it is. Like You know that they're probably going to get get slapped for that where you know there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of smaller ones to do with you know, either know, like pace of play or just, you know, little stuff like that, that that the week to week doesn't make a difference, but that players might get popped for occasionally. So something I I talk about a lot is how there's no kind of give and take on the PGA tour where like we see it right now with the NFL going through this collective bargaining agreement where mm-hmm. you got the owners pushing one way and the players pulling the other way, you know? Yeah. And with the tour, it's just the players. Do you, do you think that's like a pretty fair representation that that the because it's a there's not really a a pull the, the opposite direction of what the players want we get kind of a very closed off player centric model. I think we do in a way. Um, I also think the PGA Tour are pretty good about manipulation is the wrong word, but certainly suggesting to their players that this is the best course of action for whatever they you know for what they want um and i think you know obviously it all it generally all comes down to the pack at the end of the day but i think the tour has a really good ability to say you know this is this is what we need to do for tv because we're in charge of this and even though it's your product and you guys are the independent contractors you know this is what we're best at so this is what we think it you know the course of action should be and the tour and the players are generally like yeah we don't you know we don't know enough about that so we'll probably go along with that and explain it to us and what the options are and stuff like that. So I think the tour is pretty good about doing that, but yeah, it's a real, it is a real player centric model. And um, I think it was, you guys were talking about it the other week, but I, I think it was a good point that, um, you know, it was a Goodell that was, or one of the commissioners was saying like, even bad press is good press sometimes. So mm-hmm. the, the tour doesn't, the tour very much goes the opposite way from that. Um, they, they, try and get as much bad press um i guess swept under the rug or just not released um just not put in the public as as they can um and as a result because they're trying to protect the players like that's the the players are the are their brand you know mm-hmm. the the nfl the brand is the nfl you know the nba the brand is the nf the nba but i think with the pga tour the their brand is the players more than anything which is which is why they you know, every few years they cycle through, um, cycle through their guys that are going to be the, the the face of the tour. You know, it's Ricky's been there for a long time, and I know you and I were just talking about prior to coming on that, that um, you're doing some some research on a on a guy that used to be you know one of the faces of the tour for a couple of years. With, with I, so, it's crazy like, how they can just like that's the thing with golf is so different than other sports is like how how it could just go so fast. Yeah, yeah. So, and because those other, and because all the other major sports are team driven as well, you know, the teams, the, you, 
with golf, you're a fan of Brooks Koepka or you're a fan of Phil Mickelson or whatever. Um, you might have a couple of players you'd like. With with football, you know, like you're a you're a Bears fan and I'm a Falcons fan. Like that's what we, you know, I, I like Julio. I like, you know, Matt Ryan. If Julio or whoever gets traded or one of the Falcons guys gets traded, I don't care about him anymore because he's on a different team, you know. That doesn't they've, that doesn't happen with the PGA Tour because those – yeah, well, unless unless something happens in the next couple of years with this new league, but that's um, that's that's yeah, something that's... I I always struggled before the fried egg when I was just like every people knew that I love golf and played golf. Mm-hmm. People would be like, "Who's your favorite golfer?" I'd be like, "I honestly have no clue." <laughs> like I was no the same, clue. especially when especially when I was playing because I was very adamant in the fact that like I can't have a favorite player because they're my peers, you know. Like and and to admit that I have a favorite player admits that they're better than I am and they certainly probably are but um yeah I found it tough like I once I got into college you know my my favorite players growing up were probably Norman and coming out of Australia that's pretty standard um and and Fred Couples was always one of my heroes and then towards the end of high school when I was getting to college I loved Duval like he was just I thought he was the the coolest guy out there and after that like really I didn't have a favorite player and i don't know if i do they're guys i like to watch for sure um and then maybe guys i root for a little bit more and when i was working as an agent so i pulled for our guys as much as i could um but yeah i don't i don't think i have a favorite player you know which yeah. is which is weird to be a fan of a sport and not have someone every week you're like man how'd so-and-so do this week you know when we were having this conversation that made me think of this that almost i'm almost fans of a fan of tournaments yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Like, or, or golf courses, or which is, I think, I think where the popularity of the Ryder Cup and stuff like just goes to another level because you're not only, yeah, and we've seen it with like a lot of guys that like don't, you know, and there's yeah. some guys, on, some guys on Twitter, you know, that, that do this like they're Americans, but they pull for a lot of European guys because they like those personalities better. But well, the, right our, our crop of American golfers is is kind of <laughs> extraordinarily unlikable at this there's, moment. There's a real, there's a real mix, that's for sure. You know, <laughs> so it's, I mean, especially when you're putting guys that are like as volatile and as as controversial as like Reed or Bryson on your team every year, like they're going to be on the team every year. So it's, you're either going to love them or hate them. Like there's, there's no in between. So, but it's it's interesting when the Ryder Cup rolls around because not only does it become um, Brooks Koepka is my favorite player, but he's now playing for my country. So it's kind of doubled a little bit. And, you know, probably same with the Europeans. Like they, you see it like most of, a lot of the European guys probably don't like Sergio 49 weeks of the year, but that week he plays for them in the Ryder Cup, and he's, he's their hero. So, so what, what do you think of the PGL? I think um, if it wasn't backed by a regime, a monarch regime that liked, cutting heads off and journalists and torturing and um, treating women as second-class citizens, it might be a cool idea. <laughs> like, that, it honestly is like, I, from like a pure product standpoint, there's no, it's so much better than the PGA tour in my opinion, but the, all the issues are on the mm-hmm. morality side and, and, and the morality huge, side and then huge the issues, side. huge issues. Yeah. And but, if, if you're if you're a player that can put your put your head in the sand and not care about those things or, or convince yourself that you don't care about those things or really not care about those things, then 
then you might go and play it, you know. But if you've got if you've got a conscious or conscience or are aware of it, then yeah, it's a really hard thing to reckon with, I would imagine. Um, but I think it has the putting it in a putting it in a vacuum. I think it has the ability to be a really really good product um, if they do it the right way. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see because I think if they don't get Tiger and Rory and Phil. If they probably don't get two of those three, I think it struggles or maybe doesn't even get off the ground. But I think if they get two of those three or three of those three, then I think it could really take off. That's the thing I I think is that we're going to have a very slow, drawn out kind of and kind of just process here. And if if two if two of those guys go, it's it's, Mm -hmm. everybody's gone. Like that. I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's going to be one of those situations where it we, we're either going to be talking nine months from now and be like, hey, remember the that Premier Golf League? We haven't really heard much about that recently. And it fizzles out over the course of a year or so because they just can't get off the ground. Or it's going to be like it's starting in six months and here's the schedule and here's who's playing. Like like it's it's almost kind of got to be a little bit one or the other. It's either just going to, going to get going and everyone's going to sign on and they're going to figure it out and announce it all at once, or it's just going to kind of fizzle over a period of time. It reminds me of, uh, I, I'm a big NBA fan, and mm-hmm. when, when LeBron went to Miami, I think it was that one, that mm-hmm. free agency, like a week went by where really nothing happened. I think Joe Johnson was the only guy that signed. And yeah. He went, signed with the Hawks. Uh, I <laughs> and uh and nothing happened and everybody was just waiting for lebron and then lebron mm-hmm. made his d- decision and then 24 hours everybody yeah. everybody was on board with the team yeah and then like okay yeah because they're like okay he's here so that space is gone that money's gone that cap space is gone yeah. which means this is open which means that's open it's like yeah, it's it's going to be a little bit like that, I think. So yeah, it's got. I mean, it's got potential to be really cool, but I I don't think I could. I mean, if I was out there right now, it's going to be interesting to see what players try and jump on with it that are in that like thirty to fifty range. Yeah, because you might struggle to get a bunch of those guys, or you might get a bunch of those guys. But does it really matter to their bottom line? I think their bottom line is about the four or five big names they can get it, to me it's it's rory brooks uh tiger dj jt are the ones that like really matter and, and phil i'd put in there phil, as well, yeah. yeah 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 and and, um, and then everybody else is it's like yeah. it doesn't really it doesn't matter like if Oops. if patrick reed signed tomorrow it really wouldn't matter well that's and that's and practically reed's a really high profile player like Who's gonna Who's gonna care? And this is not a disparate, disparaging comment against the player, but who's gonna care if like Charlie Hoffman signs somewhere? You know? I, I saw Charlie he Hoffman's a, Charlie Hoffman's a hell of a player. He's played on tour forever. He's so good. But is the average golf fan gonna be like, man, I'm turning on the Premier Golf League because you know Charlie Hoffman's playing in it this week? You know they're not. It's they're turning on because one of those big names is playing and they're the captain of their team and the other guys are the yeah, they're the other guys are your J.R. Smiths and your 
you know, Carl Corbers of the world. It's, it was so funny because I, I saw a headline that said Charlie Hoffman's out on the out, out on the PGL, <laughs> and I'm like, well, he's the 167th ranked player in the world. I think he's I think he's out in general. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure. He's, yeah, I'm not sure he's invited. Yeah, um, I don't think he was I, ever I in. Yeah, I equated to it's happened twice um, in Australia actually. The cricket split in the late 70s and early 80s um, with the one day game and Kerry Packer, who was Norman's Norman's buddy, who hit Norman built his course for and played golf with him, whatever. He split cricket from the traditional kind of five day and created this one day series. And like it changed the sport, but it tore it apart for a few years. But now the sport's completely different and probably a lot better because of it, because there's different versions of it now. You can go, you can go watch a, a five-day match, a, you know, one-day, two-inning match, or you can go watch basically the home run derby version of it, which is great fun too. Um, but it, they also tried it in rugby league um, probably in the 90s sometime. I can't remember exactly, maybe late 90s, um, and split off to be the Super League. Um, so they created a bunch of teams and they tried to poach a bunch of players and they kind of did, and these two leagues ran concurrently for like a year or two, and then they eventually just had to amalgamate back together because neither one was profiting enough against the other one to kind of destroy the other one, I guess. Mm-hmm. So they ended up just like the teams ended up back combining, and it was like five years later. It was all it was a couple of new teams and a couple of combined teams and then some of the old teams, and it was the same sort of thing again. So, yeah, it's like that, that's the precedent I've seen in, in, in my lifetime for it. Yeah, the NBA ABA would be one where that's you'd, true, yeah, you'd sure. have something um, similar to work off of the uh, it, it. It one of the things that makes so much sense to me that I never had really thought of it because I'm like not, you know, I go to a golf tournament and I watch like an obscure group for 18 holes. That's just yeah. the way I am. I very rarely watch the stars because like you know what, I don't want to deal with the people. You know, yeah, you can't see them half the time. So and, and um, with with the but for the regular fan, like Ricky just shot 76 at, at the Honda on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Like there are a bunch of people that probably bought tickets for the weekend. Like one of the reasons they're excited to go is to watch yeah. Ricky Fowler and he's not going to yeah. be playing. And it's just and like, he, yeah, this, he, might, he might not be there. Or, or it's like when Tiger misses, which doesn't happen that often, but it's happened a lot more recently. It's like the hit that those tournaments take financially when he doesn't play the weekend is massive. Like it's, I mean, I'm sure there's tournament directors have just had to pull their hair out of a Tiger playing poorly and missing the cut and being like, well, there goes, you know, trying to clear this amount for the year. You know, we're now we're trying to break even or whatever it may be, you know, so. Uh, last, last, uh, I guess, last big question before we get out of here and then we'll have one fun yeah. one to end. Uh, what okay. What do you think about the uh, USGA RNA report? Um. I've talked to a few friends about this a lot. Um, I think you've got to. I think you've got to take it for what it is and say that's where the game's heading. My whole thing is like, it's not necessarily for like. We're, I'm in favor of of a rollback in some some way, shape, or form because one, because I think, I, I think the main most important skill in golf should be hitting the center of the face with hitting the sweet spot with. Everything from driver through to putter, everything that technology's done, particularly in the past 20 years, has been to reduce that skill. I think that should be the most important skill. And I think I think, could- I think the important thing there is that the the advancements 
it to help the 18 handicap have helped the 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 plus two sure. plus the scratch golfer to plus 10 exponentially more than they've helped the 18 handicap i think they well, i think what they've done is it's brought that talent pool together yes it's turned it's turned the average players into pretty good it's turned the not well, the not average aver- like, average professionals right uh, yeah so yeah if we're talking professionals or elite lead amateurs together as a whole like it's taken the lower end of that and brought them more towards the middle it's taken the middle and slightly pushed them towards the front and it's actually taken the best players and brought them back slightly so it's kind of con- it's condensed i'm making hand gestures here it's condensed that um it's condensed that skill or that talent pool so i'd i'd love to see that talent pool expanded and and like I know I do it and you do it. I go and play with like a bunch of retro equipment all the time just because I think it's fun. And I wouldn't necessarily go and do it at um, like, say, the Atlanta Athletic Club around here or like the Honors up in Chattanooga because they're like 7,500 from the back and it would just be like, you know, kicking yourself in the nuts for a day. and It wouldn't be much fun. But go do it at like our home course here, Bobby Jones or like a Sweetens Cove or uh, the fields down in – Grange, like somewhere like that, it works really, really well because those courses were designed for that kind of level of equipment, or at least they played at that level of equipment. So, like it, it all, it all kind of depends. So, I, I think my big thing is I think that skill needs to be brought back somehow, and whether that's with a ball that spins a little bit more, whether driver heads are limited in size or whatever it may be, I don't know. But I think it's not necessarily for right now because I think we're on the border. You know, we're adding tees to championship courses and, and things like that. And, and shorter courses are becoming um, um, less appealing because they're easy to overpower, whatever it may be, for the elite player. Well, I think they just are, just are hitting wedges. You know, like that's the thing everything. that I say. It's, it's, it's just, just when you're just hitting wedges into every green, it's, it, you've lost that variety. You've lost dimensions, yeah, to the game. Um, but it's not necessarily for that as well. Like right now, it's for what's the game going to look like in a hundred years? You know, because because Jesus, we didn't have iPhones a little over ten years ago. You know, and now you can walk around with a every piece of knowledge in the world in your pocket. You know, and that's in that's in like twelve years or whatever it may be from the iPhone coming in. What's what did golf equipment look like a hundred years ago? What did it look like fifty years ago? And then think about what it's done in the last twenty or you know twenty ten to twenty years. I don't know how much further it can go, but but I don't think looking back 20 years, we could have envisioned where it could go either. You know, I don't think launch monitors was something in the mid-90s. We were like, you know what's going to be really important in about 20 years is these Doppler radars. We're going to be able to measure everything and we're going to be able to maximize everything we do. I don't think anyone could have really predicted that unless you were kind of working deep in that tech space. So who knows in 100 years what we're going to be able to do um, and if that's the case, everything's going to keep improving, you know. And we talk about golfers now bringing athletes, um, becoming athletes. That's for sure the case. But we're also got better equipment. We're going to be able to maximize stuff um, to the nth degree. Who knows what we're going to be able to do with things like 3D mapping um, and, like, artificial intelligence in 10 years' time. We can maximize a golf club now. We might be able to maximize the human body in 20 or 30 years' time. You don't know. So... We don't know where those advancements are eventually going to head. Um, if the ball and the driver are at their absolute limits right now um, and they're not going to go any further, that's, that's 
that may be the case. It may not be. I don't, I don't know. And I'm not smart enough person to answer that, but that's kind of my take with it. It's like, I think there needs to be some sort of cap or at least limit looked at from now because we don't know where it's going to go in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And it's like, people say, Oh, Cameron champs, the anomaly. But it's, if you go to a college event, that's not the case. You want to know? You want to know how many guys on my team out of nine can hit one twenty if they really want to swing speed? <laughs> like seven of them. Yeah, <laughs> and we're not even that good. Like we got some good players, but they've all they've all got speed, man, because they've trained for it their whole life, you know. And they're swinging clubs that allow them to do it as well. And you know, I've got I had nine kids on my team. One swings it at 106, one swings it at 115, and the others are all 115 to 125, like all of them. I remember when I got the uh, the 975J, I think. Yeah. I got in, in the, I got, I think I got fit, but it was, you know, at that time, rudimentary fitting, and they put me mm-hmm. in like a 75 or 80 gram shaft. <laughs> It's just like crazy to think about. It's like, and they were they were giving you the best option at the time, or the, what they thought was the best option at the time. Like, like shafts are going to get lighter and stronger and be able to react, react better. Like, just I don't know. Like, I, I'm, I'm, it's and like you said, it's not necessarily for the average player because that's great for them. The technology is getting better. Um, it's fantastic. But when you look at the elite amateur game or the elite you know, college golfers or professional golfers. Yeah, I, I just I just feel like skills being taken away so much. Like I pull out my I pull out my clubs. I went and played with the boys the other week, my first 18 hole round, and I play with a half set. And um I tied one of them and beat the rest of them, which I'm I'm super bragging about that in one one respect, but also in the other respect, it really made me like play shots and I probably might not have beaten them if I'd had a full set in because I wouldn't have engaged as much in every shot. So little things like that, you know, just, you know, playing, playing clubs that are hard to hit, make you real to me, make me really engage in what I'm trying to do. You know, I was, I got in this stretch this summer where I just like, I always have been a great driver of the ball and I just Mm -hmm. really struggled with my driver. And I start, I went back and started playing with a persimmon driver mm-hmm. and it just, it made me like actually hit it. it like th- what you said, it made me think about hitting the sweet spot as yeah, opposed, absolutely. as opposed to trying thinking about speed. Yeah. You have to, you have to, like you have to, you have to put a swing on it. I mean, you can still swing it hard, like, but not everyone could like back in the day, like Norman and Sevy could go after it. And Sevy was wild, but Sevy also swung it harder than most guys. And I think, I think Clates would be like the first to say that's kind of the case. Norman had such an advantage because not only could he swing it close to as hard as he wanted to, he was really straight doing it. So, and not everyone could do that. So there was a, there was an advantage to being to that skill. And that skill wasn't necessarily just the speed. It was the speed combined with being able to hit the middle of the club face consistently. So, and now guys, like you can, you can go, you can go with drivers close to as hard as you want most of the time, you know, and, the difference between hitting an inch off center with a persimmon driver and an inch off center with a, um, you know, modern day 360 CC head driver is massive. You know, well, that's, that's my big thing. I was like, I, it's, it's so much more skill based. All you have to do is, is take a, a driver today and hold the yeah. ball an inch from the sweet spot and look where mm-hmm. it is on the face and then yeah. take an old driver 
and hold the ball an inch from the sweet spot. And when yeah. you're swinging harder, you're you're bringing more variability of hitting the ball in that sweet spot. And that's been gone now because it, it, on a lot of drivers, that high toe is the hottest place. Absolutely. And, like, even, like, you look at, like, TaylorMade bringing out the roll face technology and, like, I mean, I can't say whether that works or not, but the concept of it, the concept of it is to, like, you don't have to hit in the, in the middle of the face and it's going to go straight. Like, that's the... That's the basis behind it. So everything we've done in technology in the last 20 years is to, mid, to me to diminish the biggest score that should be in golf, even, with, even down to putters. Like the like MOI on a putter is, is fairly important from my understanding. Um, but go back and my dad's got a bunch of like Wilson 8803s and stuff like that because he, he putted with one for like his whole life until, until not long ago. So he's got a handful of those at home, and I, I've taken them out to putt with, and they come off so bad if you don't hit it in the dead sweet spot. Like, just you've got a 20 footer and you don't strike it right, it's coming up like six feet short. And like, now I got a six footer because I didn't strike my putter well. Like, that's a, that, you know, that's, that's, it's a great point. That is a, a huge <coughs> reduction in skill, is, is the, the big mallet putters. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and, and they get misfit all the time. I was listening to a, the, um, the uh the fully equipped podcast boys the other week and i've kind of gotten into those a little bit and it's really interesting and you know that's really eye-opening but that's one of like they get misfit a lot but one thing they do is really help um really help roll the ball when you don't strike it great sometimes you know so yeah that's 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 kind of where i i sit with it so I, i don't know the answers i don't think there is a black and white answer because if there was we'd we'd have everyone would have agreed on it already um so it's going to be very interesting to see where it kind of goes over the next few years. All right. Last question. Uh, what's your, uh, what's your favorite story from your years as an agent? You know, whether uh, it's funny one scrambling, you know, um, there was some good ones, but getting, uh, getting Jonathan Vegas, uh, to the open championship and we had some visa issues was, was probably the most dramatic I can think of coming off, uh, off the top of my head. Um, and we caught, it was funny, we, I, I saw, and I'm bad about looking on Twitter and reading the comments and stuff, but we caught a lot of flack um, post that um, for him not having his visa ready and stuff like that. And I saw comments like, man, his agent should be fired and stuff like that. And I wasn't as heavily involved with Johnny. I worked with a lot of the younger players and the girls and stuff. But, um, but man, that was, that was somewhere like, we told him numerous times leading up through the year, your visa's ready to expire. You need to renew it. You need to renew it. And I'm probably going to get the sequencing of events wrong, but essentially, um, essentially like he didn't get it done. And then like, that was when Venezuela was just like, like literally on fire for a period of time. Like there was just so much, so much turmoil and, and, and stuff going on down there. It was very hard to get through that government to get stuff done. And, so Johnny ended up not getting a visa and then he had to go, he ended up getting it done. I think he had to go pick it up in, um, in Houston maybe. And he went to pick it up. So this um, was when he won that Canadian open, right? After he won the Canadian open. Yeah. So he got one of the the spots. It was the week before, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he had to try he had to pick it up and then his clubs got, he had to stay at like, he waited all day to pick it up. Like he was there from like the start to the end of the day, I believe at one stage. <clears throat> and then his clubs got, sent to the wrong place um i think at one stage during this whole fiasco 
I remember talking to a couple of the guys that I worked with, like in the morning, and realizing what had happened. They're like, "Yeah, we've been, literally been on the phone like the entire night trying to figure out how we're going to get him there." And in the end, like we that helicopter that he took from from landing to get to the golf course, and then had like a rental set of clubs waiting for him. Like we had to not not myself, but we had to organize all of that. Like we paid for that helicopter. You know, that was out of our that was out of our company budget. So, like we. <laughs> We ended up getting him there. He might have had a rental set of clubs, but, you know, we, we got him there. But that was just one of those, like, like scramble situations that um, the, the guys did an incredible job. Like, it really ticked me off seeing these comments like his agent should get fired because, one, it, was, it wasn't our fault that it wasn't renewed earlier. That was on that was I mean, on you, you can't You can't renew somebody else's visa. Exactly. Like that's, a, that's something that the person has to do. It's exactly. Like, and, like and you can't go it. into the passport office and get a, a passport for somebody <laughs> else. Yeah, I need, I need this guy's else. visa. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. So, um, so yeah, it ticked me off that we got so much black about it because we did – the guys went above and beyond to actually get him there, you know. But, I mean, we, we had to deal with, like – like the Lexi ball marking scandal because we represented uh, her, they still do. So that was a that was a big thing that was like kind of putting out fires. And I did a lo- I did a lot about social media, so it was kind of like you know having I think I I think I wrote one of the press releases for that, um, and like just having to figure out how you're gonna how you're gonna put a spin on it that not necessarily has to um, be lies or not tell the truth, but try and put a, a, as much a positive spin on it as you can, you know? So that had to be about like, as hard as it, as it gets. It was difficult. Yeah, it was difficult because, and that's a, the thing about, and we talk, I've talked to other friends about this, like Patrick Reed gets a lot of crap, but he also gets a lot of crap because he's Patrick Reed and he has certainly earned it. But that, but the crap he gets is, um, is, is tenfold more than, if the in, if the whatever incident was was just isolated in a vacuum and it was another tour player that had never had an incident, you know. So there's some personality that goes along with with kind of people's reactions and like Lexi is just the nicest person in the world and is someone that I would would not ever, you know, put in put in the category of they they have to be scrutinized for a lot of those decisions. But it was certainly something that we looked at and were like, yeah, that that wasn't good, you know. Yeah. And at some at some stage, you just have to kind of admit that, and you go, you know what, a mistake was made, and you know, own the mistake, um, and kind of, and then people will move on in the next news cycle or forget about it. And I think that's that's one of Reed's um, big issues right now is that he hasn't owned it at any stage, and has kind of almost gone the other way and been very dismissive of the criticism he's got for it. And because of that, it keeps coming up in the news cycle. Um, where I, I think it would go away for a lot of people, not necessarily everyone, but I think it would go away for a lot of people if you just kind of em, embraced it as a mistake and as, you know, and even a faux apology or whatever. We, um, we live in a society that loves to forgive and almost like, you know, like <laughs> there's a thing, there's a human element to when you're, when you're, when you make mistakes, everybody, there is some sympathy. Obviously, the initial reaction, everybody's high and mighty. But at the end of the day, like, sane people realize that everybody makes mistakes. For sure. And if you can kind of paint it that way and say, look, yeah, it was a mistake, then it goes such a long way to doing, um, quote, unquote, damage control. I mean, 
you look at some of the some of the athletes that went through scandals kind of before before Twitter was a big thing or whatever it may be, or before social media was was really um, you know prevalent in everyone's lives. And you know, like you wonder if they could have gone through it the same way if they were doing it today, you know, because like Ray Lewis has a job on television and yeah. and like some of the stuff Jordan went through would have been a way bigger deal probably if he'd gone through it. E- today. Even Tiger. Tiger was yeah. like it was just at the very beginning of social was, media. Yeah. I mean Twitter started in no eight or oh nine. Yeah. I can't remember. So I think like it was yeah. 09. It, yeah, nobody knew very... what that was going on at that point. Yeah, exactly. Like, no one knew what it was yet. I so. think that's when it was like you. It was like a text message. It wasn't even a. Yeah. You know, remember that? A, yeah, posting service. I don't even. Think, I wasn't on that early. I didn't. I didn't adopt it until like 2012 or something like that. 13, maybe. I can't remember. But, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Like that would just. I think the the your internet might explode if that happened. Something like that happened to Tiger today because now we. Now we react to, you know, him, him getting a DUI or something like that, which is certainly a serious thing. But, um, you know, it's it's almost like when that kind of happened to him, it was always like, oh, it's an that's been another it's another event in the sequence. It wasn't the first one that was like an atom bomb going on, you know. Mm-hmm. And if um, yeah, if social media was was what it was today for a lot of those those scandals, I think. I think certainly a lot of it gets blown out of proportion, but I think a lot of it uh, comes comes back down to earth pretty quickly too, because of that. Just because of the, just because of the news cycle, and that the t- something else is going to be more important to us in fifteen minutes. So. The tours just being stupid too, you know, they're 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 making it look terrible too. Like the, I think that Major League Baseball is kind of in the same same bucket with the, oh, Astros. the Astros. The Astros are done awful. Oh, the Astros and the Major League, I feel like. Yeah, they've done a similar awful job in terms of not owning it and not necessarily admitting to it, but even addressing it as a problem kind of thing. Um, that that becomes the, the for me as a person that becomes the big issue when you don't even regard it as a problem. Yeah, you know, which is to, to, which is what it seems like the major major league baseball's done with the Astros. They're like, yeah, this isn't a problem. You're like, yeah, it's a really big problem. It's a serious serious thing. And fans and players alike are going to treat it that way until you address it. And they're just not doing that. And, and that's the thing. It's like it, Reed wins last week. And all I can think about right after he wins is like, I wonder how many lies he, he, he did his, his club tap on, you know? It is the first thing, is the first thing I thought of, like when he won as well. It was like, you know, when, when I saw him, like he's now got eight tour wins or whatever. I was like, yeah, but how many of those are legitimate now? Like maybe eight of them, maybe, maybe, you know, seven of them, maybe one of them. I don't know. That's the thing. And you don't know when a player has certainly has the reputation for it now and that it's a pattern. It's not a one-off. Like, like talking about Lexi's stuff. Like I know it was a bad mark and it should have been a penalty and whatever and whatever and whatever, but she doesn't have a pattern of doing that either. You yeah. know, like, like she does she doesn't have a history going back to college and junior golf of these things happening of people who have been around her for years. It was, it was kind of an isolated one-off incident for the most, you know, for the most part. So, um, but with someone like Reed, it's a little bit of a different story. And look, we love villains. And I think, I think overall he's probably good for the game in some way. Um, But I'd certainly hate to be the guy sharing a locker across the locker room with him 
I think he's good for the game in the sense that he's different, but he's really, really damaging to the game when he's cheating and being, yeah, oh, for sure. being yeah. enabled. Like, that's the, the thing. It's like, I, I don't, uh, whatever, you know. They, and that's what they, I was kind of getting at. Like, I, I would struggle as a player um, having to, having like, that's what I said about sharing the locker room with him. Like, I would yeah. struggle as a player not being able to address that, you know, myself. That, and that, yeah, and then players being quieted. It's just crazy. So Yeah, it is. It is. It's, uh, well, protect the shield or whatever, you know, so. Hey, uh, so we're going to let you get out of here. We've, you've been uh, more than generous with your time. Uh, you're, you're, you got a private Twitter account, so nobody can chirp at you. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, they, can, they can try, but, uh, you know, hopefully a bunch of new Georgia state, uh, golf fans. I hope so. I hope so. We're, like I, um, I will say I'm, I'm really enjoying uh, the coaching side of things and we're, we're trying to build a great program here. It's just, it's college golf's fun, man. And I would encourage, um, everybody if you're a golf fan and you're in an area where like any college golf's going on even like a d2 or d3 or whatever it may be a lower level d1 you know women's golf doesn't matter like get out and watch it because it's like you know you might be watching the next matt wolf you might not be but it's it's fun and these kids can these kids can ball like they can play i'm telling you yeah it's amateur event college events they're really fun they're they're basically uh, you know, you get they aren't PGA Tour players, but they're really good. You're going to get that same shock and awe watching them, you know, hit a golf ball. Yeah. And like I alluded to before, you're still going to like for, for all this talk about fans like to see the long ball. Like, um, you know, like I was I had a and I was I know we're going long, but I'll tell a quick one. Um, we were playing a practice round last week in one of our events and my guys were talking about certain players on tour and we were walking along and one of them was said something about Justin Thomas and like how fast he swings it, you know, his, his ball speeds this. I was like, guys, every one of you has that ball speed or more. Like you have to, that now part of my point was too, I was like, you have to realize these guys aren't necessarily gods in the athletic ability they have. They're better golfers than you 100%, but it's not because he's hitting it further. You know, like I was like, and we walked down the fairway to one of the balls and I was like, Hey man, how, how far did that one go? And he's like, that went, because it was, re- our practice round was really dry and really windy. He's like, that one went 345. And I was like, there you go. Like, yeah. <laughs> Justin Thomas didn't hit a 20 past you on this hole. Like, I guarantee that. He's, he's here or behind you. So, you know, you got to, you got to recognize that it's, um, it's like I went, like I was talking about earlier, it's a lot of the skill factor is what separates those, the absolutely great players. Yeah. Skill and, and brain, the way they think. Yeah. And being smart, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Nick. Thanks, Andy. Enjoy it, buddy.